Our scripture lesson today is taken from Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. I'll be giving background to this letter during the sermon, but suffice it to say here that Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, which has many factions and is, is multifaceted, and is in a city which has a, a very diverse population. But he is writing to them about his attempt and their attempt to reach the population of their city. So it's 1 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 19. For though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, the law though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I too may share in its blessings. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Come Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, come kindle the flame of sacred love in these warm and expectant hearts of ours. May the words of my mouth and may the thoughts and meditations that these words elicit in our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On each of the past two weeks, Maggie and I have had heightened experiences of different people coming together under the banner of the Judeo-Christian heritage in our country. On September 24th, we stood on the Capitol grounds along with thousands of others, heard Pope Francis address the United States Congress, then saw him at a distance on the balcony as he blessed the gathered crowd and the nation that we call home. This past Thursday evening, we attended a lecture before a full house at the Sixth and I Synagogue in downtown Washington, given by foreign policy scholar Anne-Marie Slaughter on a book that she has just released with a self-explanatory title, Unfinished Business, Women, Men, Work, family. In both of these events, we were amazed and heartened by the number of people in their 20s and 30s who seemed to constitute a majority of the people present. It is an encouragement that I feel nearly every time I walk into this chancel and look out at you who are worshiping at Westminster. In the darkness of our world, with Syrian refugees seeking a place to live that's safe, 
with Russia engaged in muscle flexing, without breaks of violence, another school shooting and killing, to see young adults from all over the country searching for and drawing at least something from the different institutions of the Judeo-Christian heritage, this lifts my spirits. As we celebrate our 75th anniversary at Westminster, I am led to ask, where do we, Westminster, fit into this larger mix of religion in America? What leads people to come to us? What leads us to draw them in? And perhaps most importantly, why are we motivated to reach out? To find some biblical background on these questions, I want us to turn to the letter that I read a few minutes ago. A letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. This has been an important letter for me for 25 years. Not the least of which is due to a phrase that Paul uses in the letter. All things to all people. A phrase that has become a part of our common language in pretty much a pejorative sense. Paul wrote this letter, as he did most of his letters, to the small house churches that he had founded in various cities in the Greco-Roman world several years, about 25 or 30 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. Paul would go to a city, organize a church, stay there for several months or years until the church was able to stand on its own two feet, and then he would depart and go to the next city and found another congregation. Meanwhile, the church he left, not surprisingly, not unsurprisingly, would break out into arguments. And they would write Paul a letter to ask them what to do about their differences. What we have in the New Testament are not the letters that they wrote to Paul. What we have are Paul's answers to the churches. What makes the first letter to the Corinthians important, more so than any other of Paul's letters, is that we can get a picture of the society and of the church that Paul was seeking to lead. We know from historical studies and just from reading the letter itself that Corinth was a major city that had not one but two harbors. It enjoyed significant commercial success. It had an entrepreneurial spirit. It had a dynamic economy that it enabled some of its citizens to do quite well and become wealthy and had left some of its citizens behind. The Corinth to which Paul wrote was actually a new city that had been built less than a hundred years earlier on the site of ancient Corinth, a city that had actually been destroyed about a hundred years before that. And thus, as a new city, Corinth had the zip and feel of a trendy city, a new city in our country, like Phoenix or like Portland or like Seattle, not a staid, older city 
like Boston or Philadelphia or Alexandria. <laughs> because Corinth was a harbor town in which sailors emerged from ships after long voyages, it had in its economy all the entertainment businesses that come with seaport cities. Corinth, in the words of one scholar, housed every vice known to humanity. Like cities and towns in our nation, the population of Corinth was ethnically diverse. It consisted of Roman soldiers, Persians, Syrians, Greeks, and slaves from the Roman Empire. It was religiously diverse as well, counting among its population Gentile Christians, most of whom had converted from the Greco-Roman religions of worshiping the gods and the emperors. It had Jews who had embraced Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, and it had God-fearers who were people who believed in God but were not of Jewish background. As you might imagine, the church at Corinth, because this is what the city was, contained many of these strands and elements as well. As a leader, what Paul sought to do was to hold the congregation together, united, around what he believed were essential beliefs, while allowing the Corinthian Christians freedom of thought when it came to non-essential beliefs. What was essential for Paul was the agape love that binds the community together. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul didn't write that for some wedding. He wrote it to describe the life of the congregation that existed in their love and commitment to one another and they're putting the interests of their fellow congregants together. That is what Paul, that's what gave, gave rise to that beautiful passage. The second essential for Paul was the resurrection of Christ. He ends the letter, the formal letter with chapter 15, which is this beautiful crescendo of resurrection that we hear on Easter. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Around these two essentials, love for one another within the community, and the resurrection of Christ, Paul sought to unite the varied church at Corinth. What is important for our purposes today is that Paul sought to draw people into the beginnings of the Christian movement, into the beginnings of the church, through this phrase that fell from his pen, but has become maligned in our culture to mean people-pleasing, or political pandering. The phrase, all things to all people. As we read earlier, Paul wrote, Though I am free 
myself with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to save the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, he said, so that I might by any means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel so that I too might share in its blessings. As much as is humanly possible, Paul seeks to identify with the people he seeks to reach with the gospel. He seeks to go where they go, to speak their language, to accept their ethics and lifestyle wherever possible. In our parlance, Paul seeks to walk in their shoes. This is what Paul means by the phrase that has become pejorative in our culture, all things to all people. It is Paul's attempt to accommodate people, to create a space for them as much as possible to draw them in to the confines of his broader belief. Now what was Paul's motivation for such accommodation? Three simple words. To save some, I have become all things to all people so that I might save some. I have always noticed the drop-off in this passage. It is very elevated, idealistic at first. I have become all things to all people so that by any means possible I might save some. Notice the drop off. It is Paul's recognition that no matter how good a job he does, that no matter how much he's able to reach people, that no matter how welcoming and open the church is, not everyone will come in. He is reminding us that in our outreach, indeed in, our, in any aspect of our lives, our best efforts will only reach some. Not all the seeds we sow will take root. Only some do. Now this has been much too long an academic presentation in this sermon on Paul's strategy for reaching people. Last week I complimented you on being a congregation that listens very well. It's a little arrogant for me to test the limits of that <laughs> one week later. But 25 years ago I wrote 
a doctor of ministry dissertation on this subject. And somebody's finally got to listen to it. (laughs) So what does Paul's missionary strategy say to us as a congregation? How does the way he sought to reach people guide the way we seek to reach people today? In the big picture of our life at Westminster... I believe first, and this doesn't sound like much of a change, but but you'll see that it does have a challenge to it. But I believe first that what we do best, located in this modern-day Corinth as we are, is to reach people as we have pretty much always in our history been able to reach them in many of the same ways that we have always used. At Westminster, we have always, at our best, tended to reach young adults who moved to Alexandria. We're one of the major, Alexandria is one of the major points of entry into the Washington area for young adults who come to our nation's capital after college or graduate school, drawn by public service, intending to stay for only two or three years, but then who find relationships, sometimes marriage, sometimes children, sometimes terrific careers, and kids along the way, and they find themselves staying longer and longer and longer. Many such people have found their way to Westminster through this journey. Many of you here represent several age groups who came to Westminster as young adults. We also tend to reach single adults, young single people, middle-aged single people, older single people, some who have never married, some who have been through a divorce, some who are widowed. Some single people with kids, some without kids, some who have adopted children while single. But all have found their way to Westminster, I think, because of a quality of friendship here and an opportunity for service that they might not find at other places. We also tend to reach people, as you can visibly see today, with children and youth, many of whom live quite close to the church in these neighborhoods that have single-family homes. Some come to Westminster because they're not sure of what they believe, but their children have started asking questions. Some come because they are committed for their children to at least be exposed to religion. Some come because they want to make friends, to have a community for themselves and for their family. Some come because Christian faith is a part of their background and they want to renew that faith now that they have children. Some come because they have always been serious about faith and find in our congregation the preaching and teaching, the music and mission that embody the faith as they know it, and they want to share this with their families. 
Some come because something has happened in their lives and they want, if not answers, at least a community in which to turn in their grief, in their anger, in their mystification as to why this has happened. From these various backgrounds, we at Westminster tend to attract people who come here and appreciate the focus we place and historically have placed on preaching and teaching, the traditional style of our worship, the choral music, the pipe organ, the piano, the bells, the singing from hymn books, even if we don't know the hymns always, the rare and selective use of screens in worship. This feels like the church I knew at home, people say, as they walk in here. In addition, within these demographic categories, which are all simply human categories, we attract people who come here because they appreciate the space and encouragement to make up their own mind about what they believe and what they are called to do in situations after situation after situation. We attract people who appreciate the openness we show to people of other faiths and to marriage, marriages and families in which more than one faith exists or are welcome to people who may be the only person in their family who has a religious commitment. We attract people because of the opportunities we offer to directly feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and shelter the homelessness. And we attract people because of just a sense of good vibe, of a strong community, of a place that feels like it cares and does care. My friends, we are not all things to all people, not by a long shot. But we are several things to some people. We are some things to many people. And we are a few key things to a lot of people. We are grateful and I am grateful when people find in Westminster a reason to return, a reason to put down roots, a reason to call this place home. While like Paul, we come nowhere near to winning or saving all who come, we do save some, as much as any human entity is the catalyst for God's saving. But such saving is never easy and it is never automatic. It takes leadership. It takes dedication. It takes a lot of hard work by several hundred people year in and year out. It takes a strong staff and a strong session and a strong board of deacons. It takes well-maintained buildings and grounds. It takes well-planned events 
that people trust will provide an experience that is worth their time to attend, given that almost any time someone attends an event here, they are choosing to come to this event here rather than this event over here. It takes strong financial giving and it, stay, and it takes strong financial management. You in this church and our predecessors over the 75 years we have been located in this place have a lengthy history of providing that leadership, of providing that dedication coming from the congregation, of doing that work. I trust and I pray that we always will. One scholar has written that Paul sought to draw people to the church because he believed that the new church that had just burst upon the scene in the world, he believed the church was a real but partial anticipation of the eternal salvation to come. I believe this about Westminster. When, like Paul, we seek to draw people in, we are seeking to draw them in to the real but partial anticipation of the salvation that God has eternally for all of us. That is why what we do here matters. That is why it is worth the time and energy and dedication and resources that we provide to it and for it. That is why what we do in this place and through this place is important. It is humbling and exciting to be a part of it. I, it's the honor of my ministry and professional life to be here and to have been a part of it for 11 years now. And I am really glad that you all are part of it. Amen.